going to follow along. We're in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. I think we're going a little fast, don't you? Let's slow this down a little bit. Get done too quick. The uh, title, I think I've told you that before. I'm not good at titles for this stuff. Uh, I usually just grab what's ever the top of the particular section. We are going to talk about the temple of God at the end because that's what it talks about. But first part is more about the grace, and we're going to look into that and what that looks like uh, starting in the, we'll hit the first 13 verses here, so we want to follow along. There's a, a lot of, it's almost poetry here. Paul obviously is very good at writing uh, Greek, and it comes out really well in English. So starting in verse 1, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as, as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your heart also. So Paul goes into this idea in the very first verse is the one we're going to hit for a little while because it's an interesting way to put it. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God is so important, we don't want to waste it. And we've been talking about that a lot already in the communion and uh, with the kids and certainly with our songs. So how could this be done? What, what, you know, what are different ways that, and he kind of implies some of them here in other parts of the letter, but even in our own lives, how could we waste or receive the grace of God in vain? Um, and I think one of the main ways, and this has come through all Christendom for the last two millennia, is refusing to love God. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, but that's implied in accepting the grace. Uh, you know, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And so when you receive the grace, you're kind of saying, I'm signing up for that. Uh, the second one's also important, uh, to love uh, others as yourself. Um, but this is the idea. So what does it mean to love God? Well, desiring and trying to purify yourselves from everything that, that contaminates body and spirit. And I know when you, I know when I just read that, I started thinking, oh, this, I don't know. This might be boring. This might be not as much fun as I was hoping. I thought this was going to be a, a fun religion. Um, I don't think we're looking at it right that way, are we? Um, I think a lot of it is when we say the word God, we have to think about what is it you perceive when you say that if somebody asks you this question you know and this doesn't have to be rhetorical you can set it out if you say something silly I'll say um, who is a God I mean it'd be nice to have a good answer wouldn't it um, 
and yeah, you're sitting there thinking, well, what would you say? Uh, which I pretty much have to tell you because I got the mic. Um, I think I would tell him to just really take a look at Jesus. Let him take you by the hand and, and you'll see what God is like. You know, you get that in, in John 1, you know, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, has made him known. That if you want to know what God's like, let Jesus take you by the hand. I think that's the best answer. You know, we can see how he acts. We can see, maybe we could even come up with a good diet. I don't know. There used to be the Jesus diet. I think it was that stupid hummus goop, which, you know, it's really good for a couple days. But after the 21st day of hummus goop, I was ready for a Big Mac, pizza, chicken, I don't care, something solid. I mean, that stuff, well, we won't go any farther, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I mean, again, that's probably not the thing you should grab onto is what did Jesus eat? What would Jesus drive? You know, all that type of stuff. I suppose you can come up with that, but that's not the main point. But that's what, so now think about this. Love Jesus with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. I don't know, for me, that's a little bit easier. I've seen pictures of Jesus. I, I, I still haven't seen a picture of the Father that I like. Um, no one has ever seen God. You know, it's the, uh, it's like the, you, I've probably told this joke before, but the little kid who's drawing a picture, and I said, what are you drawing? He says, well, I'm drawing God. I said, well, nobody's ever seen God. We don't know what he looks like. And he just says, wait till I'm done. Then you'll know. <laughs> I mean, but that's the, we all have a perception of that. And when you see you're supposed to love God and do everything to purify yourselves, if you're thinking about God as a judge or a, a God of the smite button, then that, that is kind of scary. But if you're thinking about Jesus, it's like, that's different. And I think the Father obviously has the same characteristics. So this shouldn't be something that you fear. It would be something that you desire. You know, that's the idea. And again, you pray for that, right? If, if I don't have desire to follow God and love God, then I would pray, God, give me desire. Because, yeah, we can do it just out of rote obedience, but isn't it kind of fun to do when you actually want to? That would be something I would pray for. And then, and when you have those come together, it is kind of cool. Um, but how do we love God? Mostly by our obedience, uh, following what he says, because he knows better than we do. So that's, and the second one's kind of the same, but allowing chasm to develop between faith and conduct. And that's a problem in every, First Corinthians was pretty much all about that. Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? That was in there twice. You know, th what's he saying? Well, if we sin then we got to get more grace. And grace is good, so therefore if we send more, we get more grace. That was the argument that was out there. And of course, it, it, you, here's a two-word two phrase in, in, uh, in Greek that's easy to remember, meganoita, which is you know, by no means, or a big uh-uh with a <laughs> big exclamation point. No, you're missing it. Should we continue to be slaves of sin? No, we're supposed to be servants of Christ. So that's that. don't let that happen. Your conduct should look like you follow Jesus, which means when you mess up, what do you do? Do you think, oh, now I'm unsaved? Do you think, oh, well, God doesn't care? That's two extremes, isn't it? How about if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all righteousness, 1 John 1, 9. You know, that that is the way we should do it, you know. I want that connection to be good and when I mess up. So that's what Christians look like because we tend to think, never mess up, right? We've all had that, right? Don't screw up and then you're a good Christian. 
you know, don't screw up and you're probably just kind of a shallow Christian, actually, because, you know, we all put our Sunday best on, and I'm not saying this is a place to spill your guts all over the place, but we do have places to do that. Uh, small groups, individual uh, relationships that we have. So think about that. Don't, don't let that to develop, you know. John the Baptist put this well, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which is such a cool way to put it. So when you mess up, you go to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that he will forgive you because he is a loving father, because you follow his son, and you have the spirit. And when you do well, you can just make him proud, and that's cool. So uh, you're pretty much covered either way. So, And the worst one would be to embrace a different gospel. And the one that flows through Corinth was keeping you know, keeping the law as the ground and the basis of your acceptance. Um, don't do that. That's the opposite of grace. You know, you think about it. You've heard people say, well, you can't, you, works righteousness. You're not, you can't work your way to God. And I like that, but then they'll say, well, you've got to have faith. Well, is that a work? And we get all this semantic stuff. And I'm like, just, just get rid of the word work and put in earn. You can't earn your salvation. That's the key. That's what grace is about. Because even if you accept it, you're not earning it. You know, we, we talked about this at the Bible, Bible study this morning. I mean, if you think of a big gift in the middle of the room here, if that's the gift of salvation through grace, you, no matter if you open it or not, you don't earn it. It's a gift, hence the name. Um, but you have to open it to receive it. Look at it that way. That, that's a pretty good analogy, I think. So, so think about that. That would be taking the grace in vain. It's like you, you're just taking it to, to get your get-out-of-hell-free card, which is really, again, not the way Jesus put it, as we talked about at the communion. I love that. If you follow me and have faith in me and trust me, you have eternal life. Starts right then. Which means you don't fall out of it because you don't fall into it. You know, it's not just, oh, I'll take that for a while. I'll take this gift, and once it runs out, I'll grab another one. There's an active agent that we forget there. You know, it's God grabbing us, too. And, you know, never let go is, is the way that works. So in verse 2, he kind of uses uh, Isaiah 49, which is a messianic psalm, or excuse me, text. Um, and he, he applies that, which is talking kind of about the old covenant, to, to the new covenant in Christ. And saying where God's favor is shown to people through the grace of Jesus. You know, all Paul, the writer of Hebrews, John, Peter, all these guys are trying to show Jesus is the Jewish Messiah that now is for the whole world. We got to remember that. Um, I know some movies do that, but Jesus didn't look like he was from Sweden, uh, more than likely. He would have stood out really well then, wouldn't he? Uh, if any uh, blonde person has ever gone to the Middle East, uh, you would know that. So you get flocked around. It's like, this looks weird, you know, to people. But uh, so when we look at verse 3, he, he kind of puts that in. He focuses on who he is trying to please. And that's what we always have to remember when we're looking back, you know, that false gospel. It might make people feel better if you give a false gospel, but that's not what we're doing it for. Um, you just think about Jesus himself. D did Jesus come on the scene to give a gospel that made people feel better about it? Would they have killed him if he did? You don't kill somebody that's nice, right? I mean, he gave them stuff that they didn't want to hear. That's why they killed him. But he didn't equivocate, and Paul isn't either. 
And he says, you know, if there's an obstacle between us, the apostles and those bringing the gospel, and you, it's not coming from us, it's coming from you. He has a clear conscience here because he's given the true gospel. Um, and then he gives these, and we have this in Paul a lot, he gives these general uh, afflictions. There's nine of them here, and we're going to kind of just take them together, but uh, he lists nine afflictions in three groups. It's just these general trials you go through um, when in life, you know, and that, that fits us all. Uh, what happens when we go through hardships, afflictions, and then try to endure these things? You know, what, what do you do with it? Uh, you know, Paul went through them. Every Christian goes through, every person goes through this. It's not that you won't go through problems, it's how do you deal with it when you do. And then he comes to s these things, these sufferings that come directly from people. Uh, and Paul got a lot of those, beatings, imprisonments, those types of things. Um, it's interesting to listen to Paul, and if you've ever talked to people who are in, and they're out there, right, um, in countries that it's illegal to be a Christian, uh, I think I've talked to maybe six or seven of those in my life, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and every one of them, when you say, well, how can I pray for you, the first prayer they ask is never for the affliction to go away. And I step back and think, I still think that would be number one for me. So I step back one more step and think there must be something wrong with me because they're not asking for that. They're asking that they will endure it, that they will glorify God through it. I guess I'm just not at that step yet, right? Or maybe you would if you're going through it. I don't know. But that is interesting. And Paul isn't either. He tells you that's happening. It's a little belly aching, I suppose. But he doesn't ask to be taken away. He lets God take care of that. Because you know that. Uh, I think... Uh, Kelly kind of prayed that, the idea of we go through, when we go through bad times is when we tend to look at Jesus more. Not a big fan of that myself, but it is true, isn't it? Um, faith that's not tested, we don't know if it's really real, I guess, to some extent. And that doesn't mean you just go through and everything's fun. I didn't say that. Um, you know, you got that peace from God's scripture in Philippians uh, 4. We kind of miss that sometimes. The peace that we get is that God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that everything will feel wonderful. It's the idea that we have the peace of Christ through the storms. That's what Paul had here. He's going to guard our hearts. What's that mean? Faith's going to stay there. We're going to do our part, but even more importantly, the Holy Spirit's going to come in a very comforting way, which is we started this whole letter. And when those sufferings directly come from people, we, we have an advocate. I think that's really what he's getting at. So I'm still coming, trying to come up with that paradigm where everything can go wonderful I get closer to Jesus, but that hasn't worked out yet for me. Um, but maybe once in a while, I guess, right? I mean, when you worship and you're praising, and I mean, hopefully that you still get closer to Jesus that way. It doesn't have to always be through trials. And then he went with these, I, I call it self-inflicted hardships, but he did it himself. You know, he goes without food, he goes without sleep because this helps somebody. Um, and I suppose we can all do that, too. But it's just part of the Christian life, part of the apostolic life, certainly. And I don't think he's complaining. I think he's just showing these people that he's sincere about his faith and, and hope for them. But he switches, really. It's he didn't even change. He didn't even put a period, which there are no periods in Greek. But it's this one long sentence. He switches over to these inward qualities in verses 6 and 7. Um, which if you read these, it's kind of got Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, in the background. Um, 
And then a little bit of the armor of God from Ephesians 6. Are you here? If you're, so, you know, by, he moves over in verse 6 by purity, knowledge, patience. Why is that one always in there? I mean, I'll, I mean I, I'll, I'll keep working on that. Like I said, I don't mind being patient. I just don't like taking so long. Um, but uh, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, which is obviously what we talked about, the fruits of the Spirit, genuine love. So it's agape, but it's like real agape, you know, double, double agape. Truthful speech. He, you, know, this, you know, there's about five of the fruits of the Spirit in here. Um, why are these important? I think we talked about that. I started doing this, I think, when I was in seminary. Before you go to bed, you know, even you're in bed, before you hit the pillow, um, been doing this for a while. It's kind of, it's convicting, I'll tell you that. But you go through the fruits of the Spirit and see how you good you did that day. It's quite convicting. And that stupid P1 in there gets me about every time. And I do think patience in this case is patience with people that you're talking to and you know. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily uh, getting behind somebody going 16 and a 25, but uh, that sure does seem to happen a lot to me. Uh, but but I, and I, maybe that teaches us some things. But, but I think this is being patient with people. You know, I don't know if you have that. I've got a number of people online and in my life that you're kind of like trying to get to really follow, you know, and they're kind of like, the hardest ones are the ones that think they already are in, and maybe they are, but they don't look like it. Maybe they have eternal life, but I don't know if anybody would say, yeah. I mean, maybe God would. I don't know. He didn't tell me. That's the hardest one to be patient with. You just want to say, you idiot, follow this, which never works, right? And Jesus was that way. He kind of just knew what people needed, you know. You can't give everybody to the foot of the cross in every discussion. And I don't know if that should be our aim, to tell you the truth. And, commercial plug, if you want to know how to do that, come on Wednesday night and take the tactics class. Um, I did this about 16 years ago. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying it was as life-changing as following Jesus and the gospel, but it was darn close. After going through this, you can maneuver in any conversation, and you do it in a way that honors God. And uh, dare I say, it's actually fun. And only mildly annoying to the other people, which is cool, because that is part of, I think, what we want to be. We want to be a little annoying. Um, and I, I have the gift of annoyance. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, that's in 3 Corinthians. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, we all have gifts. But, but I, I mean, Jesus was annoying to people, wasn't he? He was annoying to the disciples. He was, I mean, in a sense that he was not going to let them sit there and get it wrong or not be deep enough. Um, so we want to be able to do these things, and the tactics class will, will help you do that. And then the armor of God stuff, he kind of has that in there a little bit, that uh, weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And you can go through all that, the faith and all that, and then you got, we'll get that later, what the real weapons are as far as how we deal with this stuff. But... Um, you have to have knowledge. You do have to have knowledge to be a good Christian and following what you're supposed to and being able to tell other people and help them in their faith. That's really what we're supposed to be doing in church is making disciples better, right? Uh, each other. Uh, but having a way to do it is good too, and that's what the tactics will help you with. So, so he kind of hits that, and then he kind of, then he gives these kind of little couplets where um, he's got, he's talking about his spiritual enemies in Corinth. 
and he pairs, compares and contrasts these things. It's really cool the way he does this. Um, and in Greek, you don't have a lot of these adverbial stuff, so it's just boom, 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 boom. It, it kind of has a cadence to it. But they, they compare and contrast the divine and, and worldly assessment of what we're doing. It's kind of back to that, who are we trying to please? Um, here's a little pastoral advice. Get people around you that are your closest friends that when you please them, you also please God. At least most of the time. Because we always screw up. Have that same base. We'll get to that in verse 14 a little bit more. But here, you know, he says, you know, that we are treated as imposters. You know, that was from earlier in the letter. But we are true. You know, we are unknown, but yet we're known by who? Well, God. That's all that really matters. You can walk into a room and nobody may know you, but that's not the main reason. That's not the main thing to know. Does God know you? Do you know God? Uh, as dying, but we live, you know, all this stuff that's happened. Uh, as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Uh, as poor, yet making many rich. That comes right from Jesus, you know. And as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What does it, does that, you can hear that in the background, can't you? Jesus saying, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? So, pretty cool the way he, you can see this. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I, I don't, I'd have to look at this. I think maybe Paul, in all his letters, 13, I think he quotes Jesus directly once. He sure talks about him a lot, but he, he does this type of stuff. He, he paraphrases, he takes it to his audience, and it's kind of neat the way he does it. Not, it's just the way Paul works. He does a pretty good job. These kind of give us, this is how we're supposed to look at it. Again, if you're doing something that the world says is wrong, but God says is right, then I would keep doing it, all things being equal. Um, and if you're doing something that God says is wrong and the world says is right, I would quit doing that. You know, this is, I know this is real deep, but this isn't that hard, is it? But what's the big deal of knowing what God wants? And again, that's why, you know, one of the first two statements of faith for an e-free church is that the Bible is correct in what it teaches and can be uh, is useful for our lives and always will be in the main teaching for truth and life. And that's where do you get this stuff from? That's why we hit this so hard. And then he, he says that we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. You know when they use your name, you're in trouble. Right? I remember it was the middle name that got me. Brian, don't do that. Brian, Keith, now I know I'm in trouble. Yeah, and you know that too when you use the name. That's the, so he's getting it. He doesn't, he doesn't do this anywhere else. But what is he saying here? He's kind of saying, if there's any feeling of obstruction in our relationship, there's a problem here, it's on your side, not mine. It sounds a little arrogant, but you know, Paul, we had that earlier. He always tried to make sure his conscience was clear before God. We can do that. How do you, how would you, how do you do that? Like you're going to go talk to somebody you have a problem with. Um, how do you know your conscience is clear? You wait for Jiminy Cricket to show up and see what he says? Um, is it how you feel? Eh, that could be pizza. You got to be careful with that. Um, so how would we do that? Well, I think prayer would be good. You know, pray. What would you pray for? I could pray this way. This person is really, really annoying. Maybe he has a bigger gift of annoyance than I do. Make this go my way so they won't annoy me as much. That'd be one way to pray, right? But maybe 
God, you know. <laughs> Help me act in a godly way. Help this be, even if it doesn't turn out the way I want, help it be at least a step to turning out the way you want. May I honor you in the conversation, that type of thing. Um, the Bible is very helpful, right? And if it's a really important discussion, you might just want to ask somebody else. Say, you know, I'm going to go talk to this person. And what if I, is this, does this sound like it's a good idea? Because, you know, avoiding is not good. There's no passive-aggressive commandments here in the Bible, right? You know, treat people nice, but in your heart, really don't like them. <laughs> that's not, that's the, or just do these little subtle things that disannoy people. Um, I don't think that's the way we're supposed to do it. We had that through the forgiveness series, you know. If somebody you have a problem with, you're supposed to go deal with it if they're a Christian. But again, how do we deal with it? Paul seems to think clearly he's, he's on the right side here. And, and that's okay, I think, as long as, you know, he seems to be humble about it too. So this is kind of the key. Although Paul's desire was for them to return his love for them, he was acutely aware that affection could only be given, not taken. Forgiveness can only be offered. Repentance can't be forced. God does that with us, right? He offers grace. You know, first word out of Jesus' mouth, repent. Who's that up to? That's up to you. He's not going to make you repent. Um, there's nowhere in the Bible that says he's going to drag you into heaven whether you like it or not. Um, because in heaven, there ain't no beer. That's why we drink it here, right? Isn't that a song? I wonder if there's any beer in heaven. I was always wondering that. You know. I guess we'll find out <laughs> eventually, right? Uh, no drunkenness. That's, that's a no-no. I've read that many times in here. But um, uh, I think, isn't that what that song probably means? You know, you've heard that. Remember, that? Uh, this, I'm dating myself, but we used to watch this. Remember the, the sitcom Cheers? What, what was the bar Cheers? It was where everybody... Knows your name. What is it, what, you know, that's the thing. We, you know, we tend to, and I'm that way as a teetotaler, you know, you think, well, that's all bad. It's like, well, th what, what that means for a lot of people is companionship. People they can, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if that, I've never been to bartender school, nor do I tend, think I'm ever going to go, but it wasn't that part of being able to talk to people. You're kind of like a drink-making shrink. Um, but that's it. I think that's what that song is saying. And when you go back to us as, you know, a, as a church, um, whatever it is they're getting from that, they should be getting from us. They should, you know, disciples should be, that should be the closest relationships you have with anybody is in Christ. And so if people are getting companionship from a bar and they're not getting it from the church, I don't think that's the bar's fault. I think that's the church's fault. We probably need to be more intentional about doing that second commandment, you know, to love each other as we love ourselves. So. so again, you can't make people love you any more than God makes us love him. Uh, but we keep giving it out because that's what we're supposed to do, especially in the church. Well, let's finish up here, our, uh, finally get to the temple of the living God and the unequally yoked. So 14 uh, through the end of the chapter 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For where part partnership has for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go, go out from the midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we get this verse to don't, don't be unequally yoked, and this doesn't have anything to do with eggs. This is the wrong yoke. This is that thing you put on oxen or whatever, cows or horses and all that stuff. So think of that. It's the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 11, that yoke, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. There's that word again. That's kind of cool. Um, so verse 14a is kind of the key. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So he gives these five rhetorical questions, uh, which he's presupposing you're going to say no to this. Uh, and Belial is, was, is kind of a shorthand term for Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, if you're wondering. Uh, so you could say, what accord has Christ with Satan? And you're all supposed to say n nothing. You know, this is a no answer. Um, so generally, what is this doing? It, it is prohibiting Christians with having close attachments and, and partnerships with non-Christians. That's, that's the main thing here. Um, so a, as we look at this, um, we have to be careful with this because there are churches, and, and we're not one of them, and I'm glad, that uh, say you're not supposed to associate at all with other Christians or non-Christians. Um, that really hurts evangelism if you think that through. Um, and what would Jesus do if you have the bracelet? Um, he tended to do that a lot. That's what got him in trouble. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? So that's not what this is talking about. This is, this is a yoke. This is an a, a intentional relationship that has to have some grounding that he's talking about. So it doesn't mean that believers are not to associate with other believers. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians, we're told that clearly. Um, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world. He's talking about people who are hypocrites in the church. <laughs> you need to discipline them. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 is about. Or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would not need to go out of the world. It's like, well, that's what you're here for. Remember the Great Commission, go into the world. So staying inside the church would be against the Great Commission. So, and then he also talks about later, if any one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner, think Jesus, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience because it shouldn't really matter because it's about following Jesus, not what food you eat. So the underlying wisdom here is it's important Long-term personal relationships should not be made with those who don't follow Christ. And you have to use wisdom on what those are. Their purpose and often their ethics and morals are different. Even a business partnership, think about that. If you go with someone who's not a believer, they might say, ah, well, it's not paying the IRS everything. Um, they say that out loud? No, just kidding. Yeah, I mean, you've got different morals, you've got different ethics. And, and so, but the one that was used the most, and this is the one that we have actually codified in our bylaws, and this has been throughout this, the centuries of most conservative Christian churches have, is marriage. It's actually, it's reference, we believe that it's inconsistent with biblical teaching for a believer to marry an unbeliever. It, 
It's not that it can't work out. Maybe it will. And if it's already happened, we're glad you're here. <laughs> but this is before it happens, right? This is what we, it makes a lot, because what's the most important thing in your life? It should be your faith in Christ. And if that's not there for the person you're going to marry, there could be problems. Um, but what happens, we have to be, if one spouse is in a marriage becomes a believer, this happened a lot in the first century. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is about. You're welcome to go read that. What does Paul say to do? He encourages the Christian partner in a mixed marriage to maintain the relationship as long as possible. If the other one abandons, then oh, so be it. But you can read through what he talks about there. So this is just prudence for us. Um, and we, we won't do that. If you come, the first thing I'll ask you is, Tell me about your faith in Jesus. And if both of them, you know, and I don't know. It's not like they, I can give them a litmus test. If it comes back pink, I know they're a Christian. They can say whatever they want. But you're looking for true belief because you know if you don't have that, not only is it not going to work out practically, I think we're given clear, and this isn't the only place, but this is one of the main places. So um, it's just good advice, right? The main, if, if your faith is the main thing, it, pro it just makes sense, obviously, both spiritually and, and, and logically, that this should be something that is there before you start. I don't know if you know this, but even Christian couples do have conflict. Happens. You know, I know it's once in a blue moon, but it, it happens, you know. But if you have that to go back to, if somebody comes in to me for, for counseling, which I hope by definition is Christian counseling, if I can appeal to the Bible and they'll both say, well, yeah, if I can appeal to the Bible only one says that, now we have problems, don't we? And often it's only the one who appeals to the Bible that shows up for the counsel. So, and then finally, he ha ends up with this temple of the living God, you know, and he, this is plural. This is the idea that we're the temple. It's the high idea of the Holy Spirit coming into us. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's the key. This is what the verse is talking about. I will come to you. That's what the temple was for. It was a place God decided to commune with his people. Now it's your heart. If anybody is in Christ, he has the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. It's not that, you know, don't think of yourself as a building. Think of yourself as a person who has the person of the Holy Spirit, direct access. That's really cool. The New Covenant is really cool if you really read it. And this, these Old Testament citations, they're emphasizing the promise of God's presence. God was present in the temple, uh, tabernacled in temple for the, in the Old Covenant. And he gives us what he wants us to follow in Torah and in the New Covenant. But the whole idea is you're not following this on your own. You're following it with each other. And then that Holy Spirit in you will convict you of your guilt give you the comfort and point you to Jesus, who you should always look at as the one who's washed away the problem so he can be blameless before the Father. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this, we see uh, the grace is so important. I even named our church for that. May we, each one of us, not accept the grace of Christ in vain, but not only may we realize it's the most important thing in our life because through it, by faith we have eternal life, but may, it, may we want to live like we have grace, like people who have repented, like a new creation, and ones that want to be pure for you, to honor you always. Amen.